Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible, people and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleyans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, we are launching a five-week series called Electing Gratitude, how we can navigate the election season and the start of these pandemic holidays. So starting today and then every Thursday through November 26, I'll be sharing timely, thought-provoking interviews full of helpful tips, inspiring conversations curated to help all of us, myself included, all of us live inspired amidst election 2020, COVID fatigue, pandemic holidays, challenges that we face personally, professionally, and financially. This series is designed to support you as you navigate the remaining months of 2020 through these historic elections, busy holidays, the COVID fatigue, and the new year on the horizon. And Live Inspired community, you, yes you, are going to play a pivotal role in producing upcoming episodes. I'm going to share more details with you at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that, please. But just days away from one of the most important elections of any of our lifetimes, and in the midst of a global pandemic, with stakes and anxiety feeling high for all of us, regardless of which side of the aisle we choose to sit on. The headlines continue to refer to this year and now to this election as unprecedented, unprecedented. And so I'm inviting in the host of the award-winning presidential podcast. Her name is Lillian Cunningham. She's going to join us to share about our past elections, the U.S. presidents, their personalities, legacies, and if indeed we are experiencing something that is truly unprecedented. And if so, what it means for us now. This conversation today is a thoughtful, it's a bipartisan, imagine that, discussion celebrating our past president, our country's history, and our coming election. If you could use a reminder that the best days of our nation's history remain in front of us. Yes, indeed, they remain in front of us. Then this episode is for you. Join me right now in welcoming aboard award-winning journalist Lillian Cunningham to the Live Inspired podcast. Lillian, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. Well, you know, sometimes I wish we had hit record before we hit record because some of the best conversation takes place before we go live. I'm amazed, though, that that the story that you have lived through your life already and where it came from. And so not only the work that you're doing now or the podcast that you've created in the past, but the journey that has guided you here. So I'm going to begin right now, not with presidential or the constitution, but with New York city with your childhood. So um, we're going to back the train. way <laughs> up, really, and Come all come all the way home with me just for a moment. Uh, your father, this guy from Alabama living in New York, talk about your dad for a moment. Oh, this is fun. Um, I don't get to talk about my dad enough. Um, yeah, he's a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful human being who, yes, he grew up in a tiny town in Alabama, um, a town that was really sort of based around uh, a military academy based there and a women's college. And his mother taught at the women's college and his father taught at the military academy. Hmm. And um, he, uh, he grew up, you know, he grew up in, in the South, very deep South, 
and then moved to New York City in his late 20s and has been there ever since and uh, ended up marrying my mom who grew up on Long Island right outside of New York City. So um, they had very different upbringings. I think, yep. you know, in a way, very similar value systems ultimately, but um, on the surface, you know, one from a very urban northern part of the country and the other from a very sort of rural southern part. Um, and certainly, you know, it's fun actually being sort of in the podcast world now. People ask me a lot about my accent or lack of accent. Yeah. Uh, and I always say, you know, it's funny because my dad has a pretty thick southern accent still and my mom has a pretty thick Long Island <laughs> accent. And uh, I, I think they maybe just sort of like canceled each other out in me <laughs> and my sister. So we don't really have very uh, distinguishable accents. I was actually going to ask you about that. That was one of the things that surprised me is there is very little accent. And I wondered if that was because of your years in Chicago and Northwestern. Uh, before we talk about Chicago and, and your experience there in school, what, what did your dad teach you about history and where we are and our role as citizens to make sure that the world is better because we're part of it? So it's interesting. I mean, I think he... He's someone who loves to learn. He's someone who's always um, just always been excited to, you know, expand his own knowledge base more deeply into things he cares about, but then also has a real openness and willingness to, you know, to sort of try out new things. Um, I would say though, you know, interestingly enough, I, I didn't really grow up in households where my parents were big readers of presidential biographies or, you know, even as someone who grew up in the South, like he wasn't really one of those people who was obsessed about civil war history or anything like that. Um, so I think a lot, I sort of grew up in the context, not so much of people who were necessarily big history buffs, um, but, you know, for both of my parents, people who just really valued um, being someone who's a, a lifelong learner and who really prized education in a formal way, but also just self-education, just always trying to um, sort of push the limits of what you currently know and ask yourself what you don't know enough about and go out and seek that information. When, when you left New York, you went out to Chicago, what, what were you thinking you would do professionally? You, you step in onto the University of Northwestern, I think as a, what, 18 year old kid, what were you hoping to achieve? So actually, um, I went to University, University of Chicago for undergrad and then Northwestern for grad school. Okay. Um, so I, you know, going into college, I didn't, I didn't really have a clear vision of what professionally I would want to do after that. Um, I honestly, I was one of those people who just like, I loved every single subject I took in school. I, um, I was always sort of particularly drawn to literature and foreign languages and the arts. Um, but I also, I mean, I loved math and science. I thought a bit about, you know, maybe I should apply to MIT to be an, uh, you know, ultimately be an astronaut. Then it was like, oh, maybe I'll be a fiction writer. So there was a really wide range of things I thought I could be interested in. And so part of what, um, part of what my, made my decision about going to University of Chicago is that it was a school that has a really strong core curriculum where every student is not just like encouraged, but expected to take classes across a number of subjects, regardless of, you know, if you come in knowing exactly what you want to do. And I really saw the value in being um, in, a, in an environment where people were sort of forced not to just hunker down in the thing they thought they were interested in. So uh, yeah, it took until my last year of college 
before the idea of journalism as you know a career after school really sort of emerged as as the thing I latched onto as the the right career to pursue. What was your first job coming out of school? So I well um, it depends how you define job, but so I went more or less straight from college into graduate school. And so between the two, I did a fellowship with the US State Department at the embassy in Paris, uh, which was one of the best opportunities ever to live in Paris for like six months. And I worked in the consular department and um, used my French every day helping French citizens figure out, you know, how they could travel to the U.S. or American citizens abroad who were having issues, um, trying to help solve them. And then, uh, then I went to journalism school. And out of journalism school, my first real, like, weekly paycheck. I have insurance and like a, a real salary, like real, real job. Was um, was working as an editor for the McKinsey Quarterly which is a business journal for McKinsey. Mm -hmm. So I was an assistant editor working on that, um, really like a leadership and management publication that they put out. So I'm, I'm gonna hit the accelerator down just for a moment, a moment. You eventually find yourself working at the Washington Post. 2015, we are in the midst of a wildly divisive political season. This ought to sound very familiar to our listeners right now. Uh, Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton, and you decide, you know what, why don't we take a look back at where we've been to understand better where we are and where we're going next. I'm just curious about how that internal conversation began to spark and where it led you to next. So at the time, I had been at the Post for about five years when that election rolled around. And what I had been doing at the Post for those five years was editing a section the Post has called On Leadership, which do, you know it features research uh, about leadership, and uh, more importantly, I think um, it you know does a lot of profiles of people who are in power, both in the public sector and the private sector. So I was writing lots of profiles of people in leadership positions, and. I was starting to think about as, you know, as we got closer to, um, to 2016 and like the real start of the election season, mm -hmm. how in this position um, of covering leadership at the post, I was going to approach um, this, you know, this competition for the highest leadership position in arguably the world. And I, you know, in some self-reflection realized that I really didn't feel like I had a strong enough understanding of all the people who had held that Oval Office in the past. I mean, I knew, you know, I learned of course about George Washington and Lincoln and, you know, all the presidents you sort of tend to learn about in history class, but I felt like you know, in a position of being what I think of as like a public servant as a journalist, I, I really needed to know more. Like I needed a really comprehensive knowledge of who had run for the office and held that office before and sort of what history could tell us about the type of leadership traits that tended to fare better and worse and more effectively and less effectively in that position. And so that sort of birthed the idea of, well, maybe I should go through this exercise of brushing up on every president in American history. And then that sort of spun into an idea of like, well, what if I brought people along with me? Because I bet there are a lot of other people out there in the country who feel the same way, who feel like there are sort of blind spots in some of their knowledge about American presidential history and instead of just sort of doing this on my own in the dark <laughs> as a preparation for the other things I'm gonna write and cover, what if I just let people in on my process? And so that, that gave birth to the idea of this presidential podcast, which um, 
had a really crazy mission that I think now I, I probably would have known better than to take on, but um, I'm glad I was naive about how much work it would be, but I decided in the 44 weeks leading up until election day. So that was really basically the first week of January, 2016 until election day, 2016. I would go week by week through the presidency. Um, it worked, the math worked out perfectly. I would cover one president each week starting with George Washington and I would get myself all the way through Barack Obama by election day. And, you know uh, it, it was crazy, but I learned so much from doing it. Well, that's what I wanted to actually ask about. Years ago, I was painting. I decided to paint my front hall. You know, what, what could possibly go wrong? And so uh, you, you get a couple gallons of paint and a brush and you go to town and you start at the bottom left and you work your way up from there. And then I realized, well, it's, it's not just the hallway, it's the staircase going up. And so I'm, I'm doing that now. And then I realized it's not just that one side of the staircase, it's both sides. So you're trying to figure out how do you paint around steps and banisters and all this work. And then you realize it goes around the hallway and it goes all the way down the upstairs hallway. So it began as a, prog a, pro a little project to make the front hall looks better, ends up being this intensive house-wide project that is exhausting that I should have never started. All of that to say, at what point did you realize, my gosh, I thought I'd learn a little bit about Lincoln, a little bit more about Madison. And here I'm now learning about Monroe and everybody else saying Garfield and it's exhausting. And I'm producing this and recording this and tracking down the sources and everything else. When did you have that moment? Like I may have bit off more than I desire. <laughs> Honestly, I think it happened around John Adams. So that's <laughs> my second week. I mean, I got through week one of George Washington and thought like, wow, well, this is really cool and fun, but also, oh my gosh, I'm only one 44th of the way through it. And this is already, you know, that one week was the most exhausting uh, week of, and stressful week of my life. But um, I mean, it didn't ever make me want to stop doing it. I just, uh, it hit me pretty fast how much of a project I had taken on, especially, you know, it's funny because it's hard to say whether the harder ones to do were the, the sort of big presidents who have a million biographies written about them and a million different themes you could explore or experts you could talk to. And that was part of, you know, the premise of the podcast was not just that I was going to do a bunch of research on the presidents, but that I would have as guests each week on the episodes, you know, prominent, preeminent biographers of each of these presidents, um, historians, archivists, all these people who had sort of spent their lives studying them. And so you had the challenge with the really, you know, big name presidents of the sort of overwhelming amount of information and experts to turn to. And with the lesser known presidents, you had the problem of like, no one has written a biography of this person, you know, in yeah. 60 years. Um, and it's hard to figure out, you know, what are you gonna do an episode about for Millard Fillmore? <laughs> so they presented, you know, each, each type of president and sort of level of, uh, um, what's the word, you know, just like sort of level of familiarity we have with them sort of presented different types of challenges. So I've purposely left off some of the guys that I really look up to, uh, to ask around some of the folks that I know far less about. So what Ruther B. Hayes, to talk about President Hayes. What did you learn about President Hayes as you were digging through some files? So, Rutherford B. Hayes, yes, he would also have fallen into the category of a president I honestly knew nothing about before I started doing the podcast. Um, but like every president, it turned out he has a fascinating story. And uh, I learned a lot from taking the time to study him. I would say right now, the thing that's probably most interesting about his presidency is the fact that he had a really contested election. And as we head into um, election day coming up soon where 
you know, there's a lot of questions around how soon we'll yeah. know who won and, um, you know, if it's going to take a while to tally the results properly. Uh, I think his story is really interesting because there was a really protracted sort of fight and kind of national um, chaos and conversation around who had won that election. And it took, I mean, it took months and months for it to be clear that Rutherford B. Hayes had actually won for that result to be, you know, accepted. Um, and at, at the time it was March when, you know, presidents took office, not January. And so it lasted from election day really up through March for, for the results to be known. Um, but he's also someone, I mean, the other thing that just sticks out for me about him is that he's one of those who, even after he left the presidency, he, he really stayed really active in public life. Um, and, you know, he would go around the country talking about prison reform and the death penalty and like all of these issues that he really cared about. And um, I always think it's interesting to learn about not just what the presidents do in office, but certainly what got them there um, yeah. earlier in their life, but also, you know, once they had that opportunity to be in a position of power, what they sort of turned around and did with it for the rest of their life. One of the themes that was surprising going through all of these podcasts was the challenges that so many of these individuals face growing up. I would have assumed, and apparently wrongly, that they had a pretty easy childhood and that the red carpet had been rolled right from their lovely mansion to the White House steps. And that's not the case for the majority of them. Can you share some of the challenges that may have surprised you from some of their childhoods? Yeah, that was one of the really more surprising things for me too. I, I guess I, I just hadn't thought enough before embarking on this little presidential journey about what the backgrounds would have been of all these men. And I think I probably also would have erred on the side of thinking that a lot of them had connections or lives of privilege that had led them to that point. And certainly, I mean, this is all within the context of, you know, historically they, they still did in some ways, you know, have a step up by being men and being white <laughs> in this country as particularly at those earlier times when, you know, you couldn't have even thought of running for president if you weren't, but Literally. they, yeah. I mean, you're not just saying that kind of it's no, bad. right. They, it, you really couldn't have. Yes. So a lot of these men had really, really difficult childhoods and there were some themes that I couldn't believe just seemed to come back over and over again. Um, one of them was that for a lot of these men who went on to be presidents, they had um, either absent fathers or deceased fathers, uh, a lot of um, fathers who you know, were alcoholics mm -hmm. or abusive, um, a number of them who, you know, the fathers sort of tragically died uh, right before they were born. And they sort of grew up in households with really strong mother figures, um, but where they, you know, and if you, what was interesting was, you know, I always asked historians like, well, what, how do you think this shaped part of who they were? And a lot of times the responses I would get were like, well, from really early ages, they sort of had to learn to, to step into um, sort of advanced leadership roles and roles of responsibility in their family. You know, they had to more quickly become providers. They had to um, look out for and care for, you know, younger siblings and, a lot of them also, I mean, just grew up in extreme poverty. Yes. And I think what was interesting to me was starting to think about the fact that, oh, well, it's, it's not just maybe coincidence that a lot of these men share that story, but that 
maybe there really is something to the fact that uh, for as much as you don't wish challenges upon anyone early in life, that a lot of times, you know, real strength of character and perseverance and ambition and um, just a sense of wanting to, you know, leave a mark on the world can come from difficulties and adversities that people are able to just, you know, persevere through and surmount when they're younger in ways that go on to shape them really positively or they find, they find a way to have it um, become a positive part of what they're able to do with their life. That, that beautifully answered it. And it was one of the cool aspects that tethered many of these guys together. And another for many of them, far too many of them, scandal. Apparently scandals, believe it or not, people, it, it is not new to, uh, to the White House, this one or the one before, the one before that, as long as you've been following the 24-hour news cycle. This has been going on since the United States has been around. We can unpack any of them. I think Grover Cleveland has some uh, interesting scandals. Would you mind sharing some of the, some of the news where the headline-grabbing scandals that followed him? Sure. So... Grover Cleveland, um, in some ways, you know, and he came, you know, sort of in the back half of the 1800s. Um, he, in, in some ways, I think, was kind of the first president to get kind of the modern scandal treatment. Certainly, there were scandals from day one of the American presidency and, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Adams famously feuded and sort of helped stir up scandals about each other. And uh, so that's always existed. But with Grover Cleveland, um, he was really the first, I think, where you saw some of the, some of sort of the ways that candidates get put through the ringer today start to emerge. So one of those was that a huge scandal erupted pretty close to his election or, you know, to election day that threatened his election um, about that he had fathered an illegitimate child. And it, you know, at the time we didn't have sort of national news the way we do now where they were, you know, mostly local papers and news couldn't spread quite as rapidly. And yet, you know, what sort of started as a scandalous story in a local paper in upstate New York uh, quickly, because he was a presidential candidate, spread across the entire country. And mm -hmm. there were cartoons at the time depicting, you know, this like illegitimate child. And he, he I mean, he went on to win the election, which is also, you know, something we've seen certainly over time. Scandals don't necessarily prevent people from getting into office, but uh, it was the, it was interesting to watch, you know, a campaign from more than a hundred years ago uh, have to sort of wrestle with like messaging and, and triage, you know, what had in part been sort of politically planted at an opportune moment before the election to try to sway voters. Well, I think there's a quote from the Bible 2,700 years ago that, that goes, uh, there is nothing new under the sun. And so though we're trying to write and pretend as if everything that is happening right now has never happened before, it's never been like this, never been so divided, never been so corrupt. Uh, there's some sage wisdom that reminds us eh, there's actually nothing new under the sun. So I'm going to speed up a little bit from Cleveland uh, into episode 28, I believe, and it's the one you did on Wilson. And the reason I bring it up specifically, there's so many, in some regards, present day tenants to what Wilson was going through in office and what he was doing while in leadership in office to where we are currently um, in the state of the United States and around the world. So share a little bit about Wilson's story. So I think, and just to your point, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things revealed from that sort of going back and marching through history is that, um, you know, there's something disturbing, but also something comforting about realizing that we've been through scandal before, we've been through division before, 
you know, it's not, you don't want to know that at the same time, I think there can be something positively motivating and inspiring about realizing that, you know, there are dark moments and troughs in sort of our nation's story and that it is possible to sort of lift ourselves beyond those. Um, in terms of Wilson, I would say he, one of the things that I really liked studying about him, and I would say, you know, every president to some extent, but certainly also presidents like Thomas Jefferson fall into this bucket, which is that their legacies have changed so much since they were in office. And yeah. even in the past 10, 20 years, um, I would say both Jefferson and Wilson have gone from being um, really sort of across the board, fairly idolized, um, great presidents to, you know, there's sort of a new wave of scholars who are looking at different parts of their personalities and their legacies and starting to, you know, call into question whether some of the things that have been painted over mostly, you know, in Wilson's case, I think the racism, you know, he, he's someone who a lot of his story shows a real strong personal racism um, in his life that did spill over into some of his presidential policies. He, um, you know, he sort of resegregated the federal workforce and he was someone who really clamped down on first amendment rights and freedoms during World War I. And I think, I mean, what's important to keep in mind is that you know, all these presidents are human beings and that even with someone like Lincoln, who we sort of, you know, hold up as one of the greatest humans and presidents and who consistently ranks, you know, number one in when you poll people about lists of presidents, these were all human beings mm -hmm. and no one is perfect. And some people really were products of their time and the prejudices of their time or the policy preferences of their times and other people did a better job of sort of rising above and beyond some of you know what was expected of people in their time but you know I recently so I've started doing these special bonus episodes uh, uh, I did the presidential podcast obviously four years ago but since we're in another election year, I thought it would be valuable to do, um, to add to that body of work and do just some, uh, some bonus episodes this year that look back at particular chapters of presidential history I didn't cover as much in the podcast or aspects of presidencies I didn't cover as much. And one of those was Woodrow Wilson's. And I looked at his handling of the 1918 flu pandemic we in the United States currently have had a 200 plus thousand people die of the pandemic that is currently sweeping through our nation and around the world. And the one in 1918 was even far worse than the one that we're current, currently dealing with. One of the things I found most shocking, like utterly shocking about episode 28 with Wilson, and then your follow-up to it with the pandemic episode, is that not once did he talk about the pandemic. That, that you, you could not find speeches, you could not find writings of when he was referencing this scourge that was affecting their, their nation, not only the war in Europe. Yes, we're talking about that all the time, but he never spoke about the pandemic that was affecting his own backyard. Yeah, it was really wild to go back and look through newspaper clips and talk with historians. And it's true, I mean, more than 675,000 Americans died from the flu pandemic in 1918 and 1919, which is uh, not just far and away more than we've seen, you know, so far um, as, as deaths from the, the COVID crisis, but also, uh, you know, World War I was going on at the time and 
far, far, far more, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of more Americans died from the flu pandemic than from fighting in World War I. And yet throughout his presidency, Wilson never truly, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, he did not say a single word acknowledging the pandemic. And, you know, that you can't draw a direct line between his action and what happened, but I think certainly it highlights that today the American public has a far different expectation of how a president is expected to handle something like this. I mean, to, to be a little fair to Wilson, you know, the country had never been through a health crisis of that scale before. And when Wilson was in office, there was no precedent for how a president should approach that and to what degree it was even part of presidential responsibility to, and that's part of what's interesting too, is that I think we've come to a point where we do perhaps rightly expect presidents to, to sort of take um, charge of and you know responsibility for helping the country through absolutely everything. And while I think there would have been a more positive outcome if Wilson in 1918 had taken, had stepped up and, and taken a more forceful role in trying to um, combat the tragedy of that pandemic, there wasn't a sense yet. I mean, there wasn't a Department of Health even, you know, there wasn't a CDC. And there also just wasn't the same expectation that that was part of a president's responsibility. You mentioned earlier that in looking back over the previous presidents, it was both discouraging and provided hope. So as you look to where we are in 2020, now just one week before the election, what do you find most discouraging about where we've been and where we currently are? And then, I'll, and then hopefully, don't, don't hang up on us yet, people. <laughs> and we are going to pivot into hope in here in a moment. But looking back on our history and looking back on the research and, and then playing that forward to where we are in 2020, what's most discouraging for you? So David McCullough, who's, um, I think, you know, just a wonderful American presidential scholar. He, um, you know, he's written books about Teddy Roosevelt and Harry Truman. He has this line that has always stuck with me about how if you can see backwards, you can see forwards, which to me also is, is both discouraging and hopeful um, and is part of you know, the same wisdom that uh, history repeats itself or that there's sort of nothing new we're gonna see. And so I think, I think that's part of what can be disheartening is to realize, you know, we're 230 plus years into the American presidency. And how is it that we can still be feeling the same sort of raw divisions and the same sort of tears between political parties and the citizenry that, you know, we could have seen at the very beginning of the Republic. And you sort of, I, I look around sometimes and say, how is it that we haven't grown more? How is it that we haven't evolved more past some of these, these battles and divisions. And so I think that can be really disheartening. I also think that the hopefulness is that, um, you know, while history has not been sort of a straight line toward progress and unity, I do think that for all the darkness that we've seen over history, you also see that there are times we find ways to rise out of it. There, there are ways that we do manage as a country to, to push progress and justice and kindness and, um, and unity over division um, forward, despite the fact that we go through some really, really difficult 
times in this nation. And, uh, and I think it's one of the um, challenges, but also sort of blessings of American democracy that the country has been set up in a way that it's sort of built on that push and pull and that, you know, change doesn't, positive change doesn't necessarily happen quickly, but um, but there are mechanisms for us to sort of push our way toward, you know, I, we haven't talked about it, but I did a podcast on um, the history of the constitution after I did this podcast about presidential. And so, you know, that idea of trying to form a more perfect union, I think has really shaped the way that I think about our history and that, you know, we've all sort of been given the mandate of with each generation, just doing our best to push our way closer and closer to that union. Mm. You know, and, and I don't remember if I heard it on your podcast, but I've read it in the past about FDR's final fourth inauguration, which is amazing in and of itself is fourth inauguration, uh, you know, crazy. So uh, on the fourth time he stands up in front of the nation that is still at war and still coming through the great depression and, and, personally, physically, extraordinarily ill. And he says that if you draw a line between the peaks and the valleys over the course of centuries, you will find that that line always trends up. That a line drawn between peaks and valleys trends up into the right. And as I look over your podcast and over your work, both on the constitution and the presidential journey that we've been on, that speaks to me on not only where we've been, where we are, but hopefully, this is the good news, hopefully where we're going next. I think that's absolutely true. I would agree with FDR on that. And I, I would add to, you know, that um, part of what I realized in going back through all of these presidents is that sort of regardless of how they're seen in the moment and how much division there is or chaos that we have consistently as a nation over time, as we look back at our history, I think all of the presidents we have ultimately deemed great presidents and all of the chapters of our history, we have ultimately all sort of come to agree on as the better chapters of our history are the ones where there is more unity and are the ones where a sort of push for equality and justice and all of the, you know, the principles of the constitution, you know, are, are valued. You know, there are some presidents who did not sort of push us toward the right or toward the light and who at the time they were president were, you know, half the country loved them, half the country didn't. But I think over time, yeah, but over time, the, you know, over time, I think, as a nation, we, we sort of know what to value and what to reward. And so we're not always good in the moment of getting together on the same page about that. But I think over time, there actually is quite a bit of um, agreement in our country over sort of what moves us in the right direction. You asked a question that I just think is so beautiful because it humanizes all of these individuals who've been in office before our current president, President Trump. And the next one, whoever that may be. Uh, the question is, what would a first date be like with this president? What would a first date be like with this question? So I, 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 I'd like you to first tell me why you asked that question of the experts who knew about these presidents. And Maybe uh, if you had to go on a first date with one of these presidents, who would you choose to be seated across from? So that question, I mean, it popped into my head shortly before starting the presidential podcast as I was starting to map out who I was going to interview and, and what I might be sort of, you know, what my reading list would be um, for each of these presidents. And part of it was a way, um, again, I, you know, I'm not someone who entered that project as a huge presidential history buff. It, it, um, and so 
part of it was that I, both for myself and for, you know, my desire to have people listen to this podcast who also maybe hadn't thought of themselves that way either. It, it was a way to say like, let's try to make this history come to life a little bit more. Let's try to make these figures not feel so dry and dusty. Um, and then the other part of it was that I actually, I think there was a lot of value in the answers that I got because mm -hmm. I, it's not a question that, um, you know, very uh, famous, significant historians tend to get about the presidents they've covered and written about. So I think it, um, it forced them to not sort of rely on the normal way that they describe these men. Um, and I think it allowed a lot more sort of humanity and personality to shine through in their answers, because it wasn't just about, you know, well, how they worked with Congress. And I certainly asked those sort of questions too. Um, but you got a sense of, you know, if they were introverted or extroverted, you got a sense of, you know, their own preferences. And I think, I think if you're going to understand the way someone sort of operates on a leadership level, it is actually really useful to also understand how they operate on a much more personal level. Um, and it revealed, I mean, those are some of my favorite moments in the yeah. podcast where some of the details it revealed about, you know, the president who would pull out a chair for their date <laughs> and, and the one who would sort of talk their ear off or the one who's a good performer in front of a crowd, but like would just be a total bore if you had to sit across from him for dinner. It, it made me love Lincoln even more. I know this <laughs> is not supposed to be the Lincoln podcast, but I, that man and his stature and his awkwardness. So uh, <laughs> it made me love him even more. So we, the final question before we shift into the Live Inspired Seven is of those presidents, which one would you most have enjoyed a date with? I know Jim won't like this question, but here it is. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think in a way, and I'll preface here, I'm talking about just going on one date. This is not the person I would want to marry. It's not someone I would even want to go necessarily on a ton of dates with. But if I had the opportunity for just one date, I think my answer would be Theodore Roosevelt because he was one of the presidents who I actually, in a way, had the hardest time really picturing what it would be like to interact with him. I mean, he's just yeah. such a larger than life person. And even as you sort of dig into his stories and you read as much as you can about him, he still just comes off with such an energy that you, it's hard to picture a person I've ever met in my life who mm -hmm. has that much sort of energy. I mean, he was literally like the, you know, a person who spent her whole life studying him described him as like the Tasmanian devil. And I just think for my own, my own ability to really truly understand um, some of these presidents, I think that's one where I'm like, I still just, I, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be in a room with him. So I think that's the opportunity I'd take just to see how uh, wild it really would be. We'll bring your cowboy boots or your uh, tennis shoes for that one. Cause I have a feeling he wasn't going to sit down and wine and dine you. It's, you're going to oh, be yeah, no. quickly around. It wouldn't be a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it would be something, some wild activity. So Lillian Cunningham, we have seven questions that we tether all of our questions with and uh, they ought to be layup questions for, for you with all the research that you've done. But question number one is what for you has been the most influential or the best book you've ever read? So it will seem, uh, I don't know, maybe surprising given everything we've talked about, but I would say the book for me was Les Miserables. Awesome. Um, I actually have always thought of myself as a much bigger reader of fiction um, than nonfiction. And I think 
I think that in a lot of ways, the especially as someone who, you know, does a lot of writing and storytelling, that there's a lot to learn, um, even in the world of nonfiction writing, yes. about um, how to craft a story from from some of the greatest novelists. Mm. Question one B then this this has never been asked in the history of the Live Inspired podcast is what president is most similar to Jean Valjean? Oh gosh, oh my God, I don't know how I could answer that. Uh, that is a really cool question. Can I like think about that and back to me? I mean, yeah, he is one of my favorite characters of all time. Of all, just an amazing, amazing character. So we'll come back to one one B here in a moment. <laughs> we'll move forward for right now. <clears throat> What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little young lady growing up in New York that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I was a, a really sort of sensitive little girl. And I don't necessarily mean that in terms of like I would cry easily or anything like that, but that I think I was... I was very attuned to everything around me. I mean, I, when I was in third grade, I became vegetarian because I, you know, it was like the earliest age at which it clicked for me that like, oh my God, I've been eating animals, like real animals that were living things that like I see in the world. And, um, and that like profoundly, you know, shook me. And so I think, um, while I hope that a lot of that has sort of stayed with me, I think that as I've gotten older and sort of life goes on and you get caught up in the swirl of things, that just like a, a real sort of attuneness yeah. to, to nature and other humans and just the life around you um, is sort of harder to be as sort of tapped into and mindful of um, as when I was little. Perfect. If your home caught fire and your stepson and Jim, your husband and everybody else, all the animals are out safe and you have an opportunity to run, run back in safely and grab one item, what's the one thing that you would come racing back outside with? It sounds crazy, but I there's a little white stone that I, I have um, in my jewelry box that I found on the beach years and years ago. And there was just, there was something about this little stone that just like spoke to me. Um, and that I just, I, you know, I don't do anything with it. It just sits there. Um, but it's really, um, I don't know, in some funny way, it's just symbolic to me of, of like a moment that I sort of felt like everything clicked in the yeah. world. Like I looked at something and I just sort of momentarily was like, oh, I kind of get this universe. <laughs> um, so yeah. Well, we'll, we'll bring you back out. on for another podcast where you can answer that one, where you can share <laughs> the answers to life's biggest questions right. in the universe. But before we do that one, if you could sit on a bench on a perfect day, just gorgeous outside and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, they do not need to be presidential, who would you want to have that nice long conversation with? It would really just, it would be someone in my family, you know? And I mean, I suppose if, if we're including people who are not alive right now, it, it would probably be um, my grandfather on, you know, my dad's side. He's the only grandparent who had passed away before I was born. And I never met him, but I grew up with a lot of stories from my dad about yes. how similar I am to him. And so, yeah, I think it would be him. That's awesome. What, what's the best advice you've ever received? I'll just stick with my dad here. I think um, he's always said like, work shouldn't feel like work. Like you should, you should love and care about what you're doing every day. And um, certainly that doesn't mean don't work hard and don't do things that aren't always like fun and pleasant, but like there's sort of, there's no room 
in life for just sort of like going through the motions every day, like, you know, wake up and care every day that you wake up about, you know, what you're going to do that day. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Probably just to like relax a little bit. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I don't know. I'm someone who I think has always spent a lot more time thinking about the future than sort of like just living in the present. I think it's a really hard thing to do. I don't know that I would have, I don't know that my future self telling it to me would have made it any easier, but, um, you know, I think at 20, I didn't need to worry as much as I did at the time about what I was going to do next and how all these years ahead of me were going to play out and how everything I was doing in the moment was affecting what, doors opened or closed to me. Um, and I think, I think it would have been nice to just be told more like, you know, just take, take a deep breath and be good and work hard. And it's, it's going to fall into place. Mm. Well, the final question for Lillian Cunningham comes actually uh, from another president. It was asked of JFK during the missile, the Cuban missile crisis. And the question is this, Lillian, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She made life more meaningful for other people. Lillian Cunningham, you have made life more meaningful for other people. You've given us a human perspective into guys that we used to see only hanging above the chalkboard in fifth grade. And you've reminded us that uh, the way forward includes a whole lot of ups and a whole lot of downs, but the line drawn between the two points up and to the right. So I, I want to thank you for that reminder. And I want to thank you for being the one who, uh, who shared it with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's, um, it's really been an honor that you thought of having me on your podcast. And it's really been wonderful to take this time out of my day to think about all of these questions and talk with you. So thank you. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed this brief history lesson from Lillian Cunningham as much as I did. If you draw a line between the peaks and the valleys over the course of the centuries, that line always trends up. This is good news. This is truly good news and worthy of being celebrated. And here's the thing. We're just getting started with the Electing Gratitude series. As I shared, this series is designed to support you as you navigate the remaining months of 2020 through the historic election, regardless of the results, into the busy holidays, the COVID fatigue, and the new year on the horizon. The Live Inspired community is going to play a key role in shaping next week's episode. I need your help. I need your help. In addition to sharing my perspective on the result of the election from 2020 and what the future holds for all of us, I'll be answering questions from you. Yes, I'll be answering questions from you. So what's on your mind? What's on your heart? I want to hear more about it. I want you to submit your questions today, right now, through Wednesday, November 4th at noon central. You can email me your question at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com or you can visit me at bit.ly slash electgratitude. I'm going to say that again. I know it sounds weird, but it's a much shorter link than anything else I could get you right now. So here it is. You can submit your questions at bit, B-I-T dot L-Y slash elect gratitude. My friends, regardless of what happens in the coming days and weeks, I know one thing. The best of your days, the best of our collective days remain in front of us. So go ahead and draw a line between the peak and the valley of the course of your life and over our lives and know that that line will indeed trend up. Things are good. The foundation's firm and the best is yet to come. That doesn't make today's difficulties and adversities and profound challenges easy. It just reminds us where we're going next. So hang on for the ride. My friends, for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. What started in 1976 as a local paving company has grown into a national provider of construction, infrastructure, wireless, technology, development, and logistic solutions. 
Over four decades and 1,800 Keelians later, Keely Company's roots still guide them. In the words of their founder, Larry Keely, quality and service never go out of style.